The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, Heritage. Welcome. My name is Paul, and I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage. We're very glad that you are worshiping with us this morning. I want to welcome the men and women who I saw sitting out in the overflow as I was walking in today. And I know we're having some issues with our live stream today, but eventually there will be online viewers. So I want to welcome the folks who are viewing online. We are starting a brand new series today in the book of Daniel. I'm very excited and looking forward to this series. It'll take us through Christmas and into early spring. We're going to spend uh, the next 25 weeks walking through this book uh, in the Old Testament. I would encourage you, if you, if you have a Bible today, to open up to Daniel chapter 1. We're calling this series Kingdom Come. Uh, and, and the idea behind this series, at least in the first six chapters, is this, this picture of upright living in a fallen world. It, it's how it is that you and I can be in the world but not of the world. And we're going to be looking at this all the way up through Christmas. And then in the second half of the book of Daniel, it gets a little different. The genre sort of changes. The tone of the book changes. It's, it's much more future-looking, prophetic. And I'm very much looking forward to getting into that text as well. If you're looking for where Daniel might be, it's going to be about three quarters of the way through your Bible. It's near the end of the Old Testament. As you turn in there, I want to kind of give you a quick brief overview of Daniel so there's some context as we're heading into this book. It was written by the person whose name the book bears, Daniel. He wrote these words some 600 years or so before the birth of Jesus Christ. And as we'll soon read, Daniel was exiled from Jerusalem into modern-day Iraq into a, a kingdom called Babylon as a young man. And as an exile, Daniel served under the king, uh, under the rule rather of King Nebuchadnezzar, and then later on King Cyrus, who was a Persian king. And during this time that Daniel lived, he, he wrote. Uh, it was entirely during the time of exile, so his all of his writings took place in this extremely painful and tumultuous seventy-year period, where the people of Israel were exiled to the east, living as sojourners or aliens in a foreign land under the rule of Babylon. Now, this book, as far as genre is considered, it's important for us to understand that it, it's a book of prophecy. It's prophetic literature. There are 17 books of prophecy in the Old Testament. In fact, the last 17 books in our, in our Old Testament are books of prophecy. And, and these are books that simply deal with future events recorded by these prophets who were inspired and led by the Holy Spirit. Now, Daniel more specifically is considered a major prophet. There are five major prophets in your Old Testament Bibles. They are, they are longer in nature, and they tend to deal with more global issues, more broad issues. That's why they're called the major prophets. And so, as we think about when Daniel would have written these words somewhere in the middle 500 BCs, I mean, it was about 26, 2,500 years ago, these words were written. And the original audience of Daniel initially would have been those other captives with him in Babylonian exile. But really, ultimately, the, the book's audience was, was these, what we call post-exilic Jews. So after 70 years of being exiled in Babylon, far away from their home, ultimately God allowed the people of Israel to return to Jerusalem, to return to Judah. And as these people were returning back home in a forever changed world, this word, these words of David were written to them. They returned to Judah, the promised land. They were displaced of their Davidic king, kingship and they, they were really without a king. And so these, these Jews that were kind of matriculating back into the promised land were, were under occupation. There was foreign powers occupying their land. 
There were small congregations spread throughout Israel trying to figure out what faithfulness and fruitfulness looked like. They were trying to figure out how to live in a world that rejects their God and their worldview. One of the primary reasons I, I chose this book as a book for us to, to journey through as a church is because I see the similarities between those exiles then and us today. The church today lives similarly to that original audience to this, this book. They, they were these small congregations living under occupation, trying to figure out what faithfulness looked like in, in a world that rejected their God and their worldview. That's very much how we find ourselves today as the Church of Christ. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of assimilate ourselves to the book as a whole. And then I'm going to spend a few minutes just journeying through the first seven verses, kind of getting the setting of the book of Daniel, kind of preparing our hearts and giving us a vision for how to think about this book as a whole. So let's begin by reading the first seven verses, really getting the setting of the book of Daniel firm in our minds. And then in future weeks, we'll journey through this rather quickly. Daniel chapter one, verses one through seven, follow along with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king, among who, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Amen. And so the book of Daniel, though it's curt and it's quick, it opens up with the absolute worst of times if you're a Jew. The setting of this book is one of exile. Now, if you want to kind of wrap your mind around a little bit more what was going on in the, in the nation of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem at this time, you can read the book of Lamentations, which is this description of how horrific it was when the city of Jerusalem fell to the hands of the Babylonians. It was horrific. And the book opens with the people of God still living in Judah. Jehoiakim was their king. But by the time we get to verse 7, the people of God have been conquered in Judah. They've been exiled to Babylon and assimilated into Babylonian civilization and culture. And though, though we can kind of just skip over this quickly because it's just seven verses, do not miss the humanity and the horror of what these people had to go through as they were led off into Babylonian exile. Imagine someone coming to your door Kicking down your door, capturing your children, overthrowing your nation, burning everything that, that gives you national and religious identity to the ground and dragging you against your will out of your home, out of your land to a foreign land and then forcing you to assimilate to a way of life, to a God and to a culture that you abhor. It was horrific. In the rest of the book of Lamentations, it follows Daniel and in part it follows his friends 
as we see what living in exile look like, looks like and, and what even having a hope in the midst of exile can look like. If you look at the overall structure of the book, I, I really see it, like I said earlier, divided in two halves. We have the first half, chapters 1 through 6, which are more narrative in nature. It tells the stories of Daniel that no doubt you're familiar with if you grew up in the church. It's the lion's den. It's the fiery furnace. It's a narrative that tells us the plight of Daniel and his friends. And as one commentator puts it, the first half of the book of Daniel tends to give the reader a picture of how the Israelites or how the people of God could be at home in Babylon. As the people of God follow God's instructions as they seek the welfare of the city where they have been sent in exile. Now when we get to the second half of Daniel, it's, it's, a, it's a different literature. It reads differently. It becomes more confusing. It's prophetic in nature. Speaking of God's future plans with Israel and the whole world. Speaking of a future hope of a future kingdom. And in prophetic language, there's this image of how it is the people of God can, can return back from Babylon. But as for our text today, we see how God gave his people over to Babylonian capture and exile. That's a hard thing to say. When you hear of the horrors that these people experienced as their nation and as their, their lifestyles and their whole world was overthrown, as we study more closely these first seven verses, we see that it was actually God who did it, who allowed this to happen. And in fact, if you want to just kind of look at the literary theme that links the whole first chapter of, of Daniel together, it is the activity of God. Three times in the first chapter, we read that the Lord gave, God gave, God gave. As all these things are unfolding, that probably at the time seemed like God was asleep at the wheel, we see in fact, as we read through this first chapter, that God was every bit in control, every step of the way. It was him who was giving these things to be done. Which reveals one of the major themes of Daniel, which is the sovereignty of God. However, I don't want to skip ahead. As for our text today, we simply see where the Lord gave them over to be conquered. He gave them over to be exiled and forcefully assimilated. But before we jump in, pray with me. Oh, Father, I'm so grateful for the men and women you've gathered in our sanctuary this morning, God. I'm grateful for the way you're working in the lives of each one of us that are here today. And God, no doubt you're, you're at work and Maybe there's some of us here today who unmistakably sense your leading in our lives. We hear your voice in our lives. We are responding in faithfulness to what it is you're revealing to us. And, and no doubt there are men and women in the room today who, who maybe feel like you're silent right now or they're trying to discover who you really are. My prayer today, God, simply as we read through this and, and teach through this word that, that we would encounter you. And that's not something we can conjure up in and of ourselves. So God, I pray that as your Holy Spirit moves among us, that you would give us understanding, God, that you would open our eyes and you would give us a vision, begin to give us a vision for what it looks like for us as aliens on this modern day Babylon. Would you give us a vision for how to live in faithfulness for your glory, God? We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So my first started my professional life, as most of you know, I was a teacher. And uh, in the summer of 2000, I was applying to teach third grade in New Meadows, Idaho. I had taught two years previously at a, at a neighboring school district. I lost my job because of declining student enrollment. And so I, I applied for this third grade teaching position. I was certified to teach elementary. 
And I remember going through the interview process with these, uh, these people, the superintendent, the, the principal, these different administrators and teachers and, and, and community members. And, and, and as I moved to Idaho uh, several years previous, I, I sensed the call of God in my life. And, and as, as I was being a public school teacher, I was also working for a ministry called Young Life. And ultimately, I went on staff with Young Life. I was on part-time staff. They called it teacher staff. And my job was to just begin outreach high school ministries in local high schools. And that's what I was doing. I was coaching sports and getting involved in youth culture, and I loved it. And so when I lost my job, I kind of saw it as an open door to maybe expand the ministry God had given me. And so I find myself in the summer of 2000 interviewing in New Meadows, Idaho, at this little teeny public school of like, like 80 kids. And I'm in the interview process, and I'm sitting across from this interview committee, and they're looking at me, and they ask me, why do I want to come and teach in their school? And I said, you know, I, I, I'm coming here to teach third grade. I know that's the job description. And I think I can do that with excellency. I said, but, but if I can just be honest with you, I, I really believe God is leading me here to your school district. I really believe God is bringing me into this public school so I can be an ambassador for Jesus. And I, I'm going to start a high school outreach ministry in this high school. And I'm going to start telling high school kids about Jesus. And ultimately, that's why I'm here. And honestly, if I can be honest with you, they smiled they received that word with joy and they gleefully offered me the job. True story. Doesn't that tell you how much the winds have changed in the last 23 years? That was 23 years ago. They gleefully welcomed me into their high school where they knew I would rent the high school a cafeteria every other week and I would proclaim the gospel to a bunch of high schoolers. And with joy, they threw the doors of the high school open and said, come on in. Play that out in 2023. How do you think that conversation would end? Would I make it through my interview? Probably not. My application would be round filed and I'd be shown the door, no doubt. I was in Israel last June and I was talking to our guide and she's this awesome Christian woman, Jewish woman who, who is a, a follower of Jesus. And, and she was talking about how her and her husband love to come to the United States. And, and she said, you know, but I gotta be honest. There's something going on in America. It's different. The last three or four years, it's just, we, we go there and it feels dark and we see things. We can't believe what we see. We go to Disney. It doesn't feel like, and honestly, it just feels like it's falling off the deep end. The world has changed, folks. I heard Alistair Begg preach on this very text this week, and here's what he said. He said, I sense the wind has changed. The prevailing wind is certainly not at the back of the sails of professing Christians. The wind appears to be pretty stiff. It's a, it's a stiff wind that blows the forces of secularism directly at those who declare themselves to be followers of Jesus. And it does not take a social scientist to see this. We can all see it. We see dramatic shifts taking place in the culture within which we live. To live for God today, to truly live for God. To, tr to live for the biblical God, to, to, to uphold the name of Jesus, to live according to the, the, the truth of his word, to proclaim the truth of Christ crucified is radically countercultural today. If you want to talk about some generic deism, you can do that all day long. You want to proclaim the name of Jesus and him crucified, you will be, you will be persecuted today in the West, in America. And so as the world around the Christians and, and the world around the church, as it grows more and more opposed to Jesus, even in the West, even in America, it's becoming more and more evident, which has always been true, but it's becoming more and more evident, this thing that has always been true. And that is simply this. We are exiles here. If you claim Jesus is your Lord, you are an exile on planet Earth. And you always have been. 
We are, as the Apostle Peter says, sojourners and aliens here. Now, in his letter, 1 Peter, Peter was writing to a group of Christians who were under persecution, who had been driven out of Jerusalem, who were in dispersion across Asia Minor. Minor. They were suffering for the name of Jesus. And Peter writes this letter, 1 Peter, to, to, to encourage these suffering Christians. And if you turn to 1 Peter, you don't have to, but if you turn to 1 Peter, verse 1, in his introduction or in his, his uh, invocation, Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Or the New Living Translation puts it this way. Peter says, I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the lands mentioned. So Peter knew it. He gets on later in chapter 2 of 1 Peter as he's addressing his readers, the, the church, the followers of Christ as a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He's talking to the church, and then he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Or as another translation puts it, I urge you as foreigners and aliens to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Why? He says, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, as, as sojourners and exiles here on planet Earth, we are to be an ambassador or reflection of God to the unbelieving world around us. But to be an exile is to be an alien. To be a sojourner is to be a foreigner. And as Christians, as men and women who have been born again, who have been adopted into the family of God, who've been, who are now citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, men and women who are living under the authority and the rule of King Jesus, we are exiles today on planet Earth. This is not our kingdom. This is not our home. And though we live under the authority that God has placed over us, ultimately we live under the authority of King Jesus. And with each passing season... And I'm assuming it's become painfully aware to you as it's become painfully aware to me, unmistakably clear that I am an alien on this, on this planet, in this broken and fallen world. And so that's why I believe the book of Daniel is so timely for us today. And so let me orient you to the book. Let me orient you to the book as a whole. And then we'll spend a few minutes just kind of discerning the setting that we see here in the first seven verses. How are we to think of Daniel? How are we to approach this book today? There's some uniqueness to this book that I think we need to identify so that we can properly read it in the coming weeks and months. And I think if we're going to properly understand the book of Daniel, we need to first go to another prophet, Prophet Jeremiah. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to open to Jeremiah 24. It's just a, a, couple, a couple chapters back or a couple books back from Daniel. In Jeremiah 24, so God spoke, so Jeremiah was a contemporary of Daniel. And he was a prophet of God who spoke the truth of God, who spoke the words of God to the people of God. And in, Je in Jeremiah 24, God spoke an unusual vision through the prophet Jeremiah. And he, he was speaking a vision that spoke to the pending captivity of the people of God in Babylon. And so, so the, the biblical story goes after years and years and years and years of, of disobedience and years of God's faithful warning the people of God for their disobedience... God warns that exile is now coming to them as an act of discipline for their disobedience against God. So in Jeremiah 24, God gives Jeremiah a unique vision concerning figs. Now this will make sense here in a second. Track with me. Turn to Jeremiah 24, 
Look at verses, begin in verse 4 of Jeremiah chapter 24. And then the word of the Lord came to me, says Jeremiah. And then now he begins speaking for God. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will send my eyes, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and they shall return to me from their whole, turn to me with their whole heart. So here is God speaking through Jeremiah about those he was going to send into exile into Babylon. And of these exiles that are going to be sent to Babylon that we're reading about today in the book of Daniel, these exiles, these are the good figs. These are, God, is, God says, these are my people who have not incurred my wrath. They are my remnant, and I am sending them in Babylon, into Babylon. And now if you're a student of the Bible, no doubt if you think about exile, you've probably associated exile with disobedience, or exile is a bad thing, or a bad time, or a terrible condition. Jeremiah tells us, however, that the exile in the book of Daniel is under God's favor. God took his faithful, obedient remnant into Babylon, and he protected them in exile in Babylon, and he nurtures them there. In fact, if you read on in the rest of chapter 24 of Jeremiah, it's those who are left in Judah, or those who then flee to Egypt, they're the ones who end up being under the wrath of God for disobedience. Now listen, I tell you that because it's important, because if you're a student of the Bible— We tend to normally think of exile in a contrary way. Traditionally, in the Bible, exile is a consequence for the disobedient, for the bad. For example, Adam and Eve, they were told not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed God, they partook of the fruit, and they were exiled from the garden as an act of, of, of retribution for their disobedience. And so, rightly, as Bible readers, we make that connection. But here in Daniel... That motif is turned on its head. It's actually his obedient remnant that is exiled. And it's in exile where God preserves his people for his glory. That, put that in the back of your mind. It's important. And then, once in exile, we, we continue to read through the prophet Jeremiah that God has productive work for his people to do when they're in exile. If you go through Jeremiah 25, he talks about how they're going to be sent into exile for 70 years. God foretold the Israelites of this, and God said he was going to use the, the pagan nation of the Babylonians to enact his judgment, to, to use this pagan nation as a tool for his own discipline against his own people. But then we get to the very well-known chapter of Jeremiah, chapter 29, where God gives the exiles marching orders. Again, turn to Jeremiah 29. This makes sense in a moment. Just track with me. Let's read verses 4 through 7 in Jeremiah 29. Again, God is speaking through his prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, beginning in verse 4, chapter 29 of Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, speaking to these exiles in Babylon, here's what God says. The God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's God's instruction to these exiles living in a foreign land. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile 
and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So in the book of Daniel, we need to think of exile in a radically different way than we tend to as Bible readers. And I want to give you a definition. Here it is. Those in exile are those under God's favor sent to do God's work. You see that? As we, as we seek to understand Daniel, as we have to define terms, I would encourage you to write this down or make a strong mental note of this because it's important to our understanding of this book as a whole. Those in exile are the good figs who are under God's favor sent to do God's work. That's the first definition. I'm going to define one more word for you. We have to think of the word Babylon now, right? How do we think of the word Babylon? If you're a Bible student, how have you thought or heard of the word Babylon? Even if you're just a student of culture, Babylon has become a, a synonymous in our culture with, with a fallen, grotesque paganism. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 in the, in the plain of Shinar, which is, by the way, mentioned in, cha- in verse 2 of our text, Shinar, we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, the people of God are seeking to build a tower that reaches heaven. They, they seek to reject God and make a name for themselves. And so all the way back in Genesis, Babylon is associated with disobedience and godlessness. The psalmist, Psalm 137, talks about how how Babylon is to be repaid for all its evils. And if you've studied the book of Revelation, Babylon is synonymous throughout the entire book with the world that opposes Christ and his lordship. It is a significant term. And when it comes to God's judgment of the world, we read, in fact, that the world is synonymous with Babylon throughout biblical literature. And though this understanding of Babylon is a generally true construct, biblically speaking, it is not the case with the book of Daniel. We need to think of the word Babylon a little differently than we tend to if you're a student of the Bible. We learn from Jeremiah that Babylon can be a place where God's people are, where God sends his remnant. In fact, God says through Jeremiah that he is going to bless Babylon through his people, and therefore God meets his people in Babylon to do it. And so here's how you need to think of Babylon for the sake of Daniel. Here's a second definition. Babylon is a place where God's people are meant to be and where productive work is meant to happen to the glory of God. Babylon is a place where God's people are meant to be and where productive work is meant to happen to the glory of God. A right understanding of how Daniel uses these two words is vital to our understanding to the overall message of this book. Those in exile are those good figs under God's favor sent to do God's work. And Babylon is the place where God's people are meant to be and where productive work is meant to happen for the glory of God. Amen. So, that's a very long and probably boring introduction, but I wanted you to have that framework as we journey through this book. Now, let's get our fingers in the text that we just read. Let's get our fingers down on verse 1 and verse 2. Here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down, or you can take it on the digital notes if, if you're using our app. Number one, the Lord gave them over to be conquered. The Lord gave them over to be conquered. Look with me again at verses one and two. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand, 
into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Let's stop there. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, if you're a Bible uh, marker upper kind of person, there's one word or one phrase that you absolutely must circle, highlight, underscore, bold, whatever. It is the phrase that begins in verse 2, and the Lord gave. Seriously, underline that phrase, circle that phrase, write it in the margins of your study Bible. This is such an important thing for us to remember. Let me remind you what I said a few moments ago, that when we look at the first chapter of Daniel, the literary thread that holds the whole chapter together is this idea of God giving. We see it in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. If you skip ahead to next week's text, we see it in verse 9. God gave, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And we see it also in verse 17. For these four youths, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So as we open the book of Daniel, the author is painting a vivid picture for us. He's, he's giving us the setting of where the rest of the book is going to take place, and he is sovereign over all of it. He's controlling all of it. No matter how dark and dismal the days may seem to the, those experiencing them, Daniel proffers us a perspective that says, listen, no matter how bad it got, no matter how difficult this exile was, God was in control the entire time. He was the one that was pulling the strings. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Daniel, not Shadrach, not Meshach, not, Med- not Abednego, not the chief of the eunuchs. It was God who was in control. And so it's important for us not to just skip over these seven verses because setting is important for us as we journey through the rest of the book. As one of my friends said, if you miss the setting, you'll misunderstand the book and miss God's intent for you. We cannot miss the setting. And so we see five important markers that remind us this is not just some book. It's not just a a work of literature. This isn't uh, uh, made-up mythology. This isn't fiction. This is a real story involving real people in a real time, in a real culture, in a real place. And we need to remember that. And I'll bore you all the boring, I'll spare you all the boring details, but there's, there's so much extra biblical uh, literature out there that supports and verifies the very things we're reading today in the book of Daniel. So there are time markers in our chapter. Do you see them? In verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. We also see a time marker in verse 21 at the end of the chapter that talks about the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. So the author does this to frame for us, hey, this took place in a season of time, in a, in, a, in a period of time. This really happened. So we see also a major event. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The second part of verse 1. A foreign king really did come and conquer Jerusalem. His overwhelming assault included robbing the temple and stealing the people. Second historical marker. Thirdly, we see the location, right? We see the Israelites are taken from Jerusalem, their their promised homeland, all the way to Babylon, modern-day Iraq. They're taken to a godless place where false gods are worshipped and where the pagan Babylonian culture was foisted upon them. Not only do we see time markers, major events, locations, we also see people. We see the names of kings, Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar. We see uh, the name of Aspenaz of the chief eunuchs. We see Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These are real people who had flesh and blood just like you and me who experienced these events in a very real way, trying to connect with, understand, live in accordance with God or to reject him. These were real people in a real time. It really happened. And then 
finally, the fifth marker of setting, which is important also, is this, this cultural customs that we see. We see these cultural customs. The Lord's vessels or vassals were taken from the place of worship. The temple was destroyed. The vassals were taken out of the temple. They were, they were taken to Babylon where they were used for pagan worship in pagan temples. I mean, what a major and heart-wrenching slap to the face of those faithful men and women from Israel. Ultimately, we read a narrative that tells a, a very tragic story. The book opens with a time of crushing crisis for God's people, opening up with the conqueror of Jerusalem and Judah. And so the first thing we see, which is important, is that God gave them over to be conquered. And all of this we learn was that God did it. It was the Lord who gave them over to be conquered. And then as we move to verses 3 and 4, the second point in our outline today is that the Lord gave them over to be exiled. It was the Lord's will that his faithful remnant be exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. Look with me again at verses 3 and 4. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place, to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And so the Lord gave these men or these young men perhaps women, over to be exiled. Now, he, he hand-selected the, the folks that our, our book begins to focus in on here in verse 4, or verse 3 and 4. These are the, those influential young minds from Judah, the most influential. These are the young men and women who came from places of privilege and influence. They, they were from the royal family. They were kids from nobility, and the, the king very wisely and astutely hand-selected who he was going to bring into his royal academy from Babylon University. They were bright and beautiful youths, strong and healthy and good-looking, skillful in wisdom, gifted with knowledge and good sense. They possessed the poise needed to serve in the royal palace. These were the, the creme de la creme, the, the cream of the crop, the, the most talented, most gifted. It was the ultimate Ivy League school. And it was designed by the king and his henchmen to convert and create cultural architects who would then matriculate back into their people and convert an entire people group into embracing and living in accordance with the Babylonian way of life. Bringing them into submission with the Babylonian way. And man, what a systematic and deliberate strategy. If you can convert the most influential, the best looking, the smartest, the wisest, Eventually, you'll turn the whole group, and Nebuchadnezzar knew it. As I was in my small group on Thursday, we were studying this text. I think it was Peter who, who kept coming back to, like, as we read through the whole chapter, he's like, man, what, Nebuchadnezzar was very into people worshiping him. He was, he was trying to conform people to his image, to his worldview, to his way of life, to his kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was doing all this for his own glory. A very interesting observation. The Royal Academy at Babylon University was very very strategic. I'm a parent of three now adult kids. And as my wife and I, coming from a, a background, like I told you earlier, where I was doing uh, outreach ministry in the public high schools, I started as a public high school teacher. I believe we need believing men and women in public schools like crazy. I know that's becoming increasingly more difficult. 
the more the ideology the schools hold up is opposed to the Christian worldview that we hold. I get how difficult that is, but I believe in that. And so Becky and I, our conviction was raising our children were, was that we really believed that we needed them to be in public school. As I stepped into vocational ministry and I stepped out of teaching, my wife and I still coached and we were present, but all three of my kids went all through public school in Wisconsin, their most formative years in inner city, urban Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It wasn't always easy. It was difficult. Now all three of my kids are in public universities here in Oregon. And I'm very, very aware of the tactics employed today by those institutions. Tactics designed to turn young hearts and minds away from the truth of God and his word to the gods of this world and to the lies that those gods espouse. Very aware of that. We felt for us, our conviction, it was a conviction, a personal conviction, was to teach our kids what it meant to be in the world and not of it. Our hope was that by having them be in these secular environments that they would come home with the heartbreaking things they were being taught and we could open up the scriptures and help them process what it meant to be in the world and not of it, to be, to be not, not, not isolated from the world, not fully involved in the world, but to be insulated from the world and how they were living. It was our conviction. And so we had constant conversations, and we still do, about these warring ideologies of the secular worldview versus the biblical worldview. And yet, I, 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 look at, I read this text and I, and I look at the world around us and I see what's happening on university campuses and I see young men and women who maybe aren't necessarily rooted deeply in the truth of God's word and who he is. They've been raised in the church, but they don't have a strong understanding of the gospel. Uh, they, they live morally, but they don't necessarily know how to live in light of gospel and they're being sent off into universities and, and I've watched parents grieve as their kids turn their backs to the truth of the gospel and, and are swayed by these secular views that these universities and these institutions of education espouse. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Which is why we continue to uphold again and again and again and again as a church, and not that we do this perfectly, we could do this better, but our conviction is as a church that we believe what happens at home is far more important than what happens at church. We, we try to design our programs and our ministries to empower and embolden moms and dads to be the primary disciplers of their kids because you're going to have way more influence in your kid six and a half days of the week than we're going to have for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. And so we believe it's the parents' job and responsibility to be the primary disciplers of their kids. And so we try to structure our student ministries and our children's ministries, create time in the week where we're not always at church, but we're giving moms and dads opportunity to teach their kids to live insulated from the world, to unpack the realities of a broken, fallen world. Because you better believe just as we have a mission plan as followers of Jesus the enemy has a mission plan for conversion as well and we have to work so hard and diligently and be prayerful about raising our kids to know and follow Jesus and you know that I'm preaching to the choir and if you're a young person in here if you're a young person in here today and you're involved in public school or you're you're it doesn't have to be public school man you're just you're on social media TikTok, whatever YouTube there is a strategy that is being employed by the enemy to influence your mind and your beliefs, to, to rattle your core, to undermine the foundation of the gospel in your life. Don't fall prey to it. Be sensitive to it. Be discerning. Talk to your parents about it. Talk to your, your youth leaders about it. Do not let this world deceive you into following a false God. Amen. Just do not fall victim to that. And yet as I look at these, ex, these exiled Israelites, I, I'm reminded also that the Lord did it. He sent them to the Royal Academy at Babylon University. It was the will of God to send them there in a place that was designed to, to totally destroy their view of God. God sent them into the very center of the 
the, well, to, to use a phrase, the lion's den. He sent them there because he had a greater vision in mind. He sent his own into this royal academy, his good figs into Babylon, into the godless hornet's nest that was Babylon. And the story focuses here on Daniel and his friends for the first six chapters at least. And then we look at the prophecies of Daniel from that point on. And why? Like, why did he do it? Well, I don't want to spoil the whole book for you, but I just want to just give you a little a tip. If you, if you have a chance to read through Daniel this, this week, just read chapter 4 of Daniel. Make sure you read chapter 4. Because here, Nebuchadnezzar, I agree with Peter, is all about himself and his glory and his name and his, the worship of him and, and people advancing his kingdom and his agenda. And yet we see at the end of the chapter that he's very impressed with these young men who stand up against him and who have conviction. He's very impressed with Daniel and his friends. And by the time we get to the fourth chapter of, of the book of Daniel, we have this unique chapter, which is just a decree sent out by the king to anyone who will listen. He begins in chapter four by saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, I want everybody to, I want everybody to know something, is what he's saying. Peace be multiplied to you. And he said, it seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty are His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. That's the invocation to this testimonial that Nebuchadnezzar sends out in chapter 4. So why do you suppose that God maybe have sent these young men into Babylon? Well, we know for sure that their faithful witness, them walking with God in the face of lions and fires, had an influence on at least King Nebuchadnezzar, and by the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life, he no longer was obsessed with his own fame, but he's talking about the Most High God. He's talking about the great signs and wonders of this King of Kings, whose dominion endures from generation to generation. So we can see the influence of these young faithful men in the university. So, two things. The Lord gave them over to be conquered. The Lord gave them over to be exiled. And finally, the Lord gave them over to be assimilated. The Lord gave them over to be assimilated. Look with me at verses 5, 6, and 7. The king assigned them, these young men, these young exiles from Judah, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. The chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. And so this terrible outcome, this, this horrific, catastrophic event from a human perspective is these, these men being stripped of everything or being stripped of everything that they once held to. The, the kingdom of God under Jerusalem and the reign of King David has been dismantled. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has this, this very strategic and sinister agenda, assimilation to him, to his agenda, to his kingdom. And, and rather than just kill these prisoners of war, he wants to assimilate them and to use them to advance his, his agenda and his kingdom to the world around them. And so for three years, these young men, they were involved in and enrolled in the Royal Academy at Babylon University. They, they were systematically stripped of all cultural, social, and religious identity. They were reprogrammed to think like a Babylonian, act like a Babylonian, 
walk like a Babylonian, to reject all that they knew to be true before they came into exile. He, he goes so far as to strip them of their rich Hebrew names. The names Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah speak richly of the God of Israel. God is my judge. Yahweh is gracious. Who is like God? Yahweh is a helper. That's what their names meant. They were rich Hebrew names that spoke of the God of Israel, but he gives them new names that represent new false gods. They were schooled in the language of mythological literature of the Babylonians. Their food was assigned them from the king's table. And as one commentator makes note, as they were eating every day from the king's table, they were being reminded constantly the source of their daily bread. It was a part of the brainwashing that was taking place among these young exiles. And someone in my small group on Tuesday, or last week Tuesday, pointed this out. This was a complete destruction of their world. The king was gone, the temple was gone, the vessels were desecrated, the families were broken up, the best and the brightest, the influential future leaders were brainwashed, changed of their names, and these severed names pointed to a different God, undermining their religious traditions. Can you imagine what it was like for Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel? And as we're going to see next week, living with conviction and a desire to honor God, what it was like, the pressures that they felt. One commentator puts it this way. He says, The young worshipers of Yahweh were faced with a clear-cut issue of obedience and faith. They were doubtless subjected to intense social pressure from their classmates and teachers to do what everyone else was doing. And up to this point, up to verse 7, they were willing to assimilate. They were picking their battles. They, they attended Royal Academy faithfully. They, in fact, were the star students. They were star pupils. They engaged in the culture of Babylon to a degree. They even agreed to name changes. However, as we know, the book of Daniel, it sets up a collision course because at some point, as we all know, there will become an impasse. For it's impossible to be of God and in the world at the same time. And in time, they're going to have to choose obedience to God, the king of the universe, or obedience to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Again, to quote another scholar, he says, by their early refusal to disobey God, they prepared themselves for future greatness as true witnesses for the one true God in the midst of a degenerate pagan culture. But think of the challenges facing these young men. We can't not skip over this. Pastor Jeremy, he's preaching this exact text this morning at Philippi, and him and I were comparing notes, and this is what Jeremy pointed out in his study as we thought about the challenges facing these young men, they had a new location. They were far away from the religious security of Jerusalem. They had a new culture. They were now in a melting pot of religion with a whole hodgepodge of different gods and ideologies. They had a new identity. They were re-educated and renamed. They had a new pressure to conform to this new world or not. They had a new family. How are they going to find fellowship in Babylon separated from their nuclear family? Can you imagine the pressure that these young men were facing? And the Lord gave them over to be. He gave them over to be conquered. He gave them over to be exiled. And he gave them over to be assimilated. God was at work in the midst of all of this. No doubt you're very familiar with parts of Jeremiah 29. No doubt many of you have this verse written or a underlined or highlighted, the very famous verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says to his people, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's a beautiful verse about the promise of God, isn't it? It was written to this exact group of people. Most of you probably know that. Maybe some of you don't. If you read it in context, if you go to Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 10, 
we begin to read the full context of this promise of God in Jeremiah 29. Let me read it to you, verses 10 through verse 14. For thus says the Lord, Jeremiah 29, 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill you I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So, is there at the front edge of exile, God speaks to them through the prophet Jeremiah and he's like, this exile will not last forever. This 70 years is not going to be an eternal exile. There is hope. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I'll bring you back to this place, back to Jerusalem. And then he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Verse 12. Then, as a result of this captivity, as a result of this exile, as a result of all these pressures and difficulties you're going to endure, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me and you will seek me with your, all your heart and I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. When you read Jeremiah 29.11 in context, it's a promise given to people about to enter a lifetime of suffering. And what he's saying is when it gets as dark as it's going to get, when it gets as painful as it's going to be, do not forget, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. You're going to be tempted to not believe it's true, but I know the plans I have for you. They're plans for welfare, not for evil. I am planning to give you a future and a hope. He says it to a people, not a person. He says it to a people. And the implication is true today for you and me gathered here. No matter how dark the days may get, no matter how godless the gods of this world become, no matter how painful our pursuit of Jesus may be, God never ceases to be God. He never abdicates his kingship or his throne. All the kingdoms of the world are now and forever will be under his authority. When we think of the predicament of Daniel and his friends, we're reminded that it was God who was pulling all the strings. I like how one scholar puts it. He says, precisely because it was Yahweh who gave over the Jews into Nebuchadnezzar's power, it was also Yahweh's hand that could again snatch them away from the foreign bondage. Once they were ready to renew their covenant fellowship with him and carry out their parts of his program of redemption. And as we look at those exiles, we think of our own exile. We are, as Peter says, sojourners and exiles on planet earth today. God has sent you and me into this modern day Babylon. And it's his will to do so. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you and me, we are exiles. And we've been given a job, haven't we? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Jesus says in Acts 1.8. Or in Matthew 28, he tells us, All authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. As followers of Jesus Christ, you and me are exiles. We are among those under God's favor sent to do God's work just like those men and women in the book of Daniel. And we've been sent into Babylon which is a place where God's people are meant to be and where productive work is meant to happen for the glory of God 
for a season. We cannot forget who was the first exile. As we think about this, as we think about what it means for us to live in such a way, we can't forget who the first exile was. I, I think it's interesting. I'm pointing this out to my small group, but Nebuchadnezzar, it says, sought youths without blemish. That phrase just caught me. Where else do we see that in the scriptures? Without blemish. We, we read about the Passover festival where a lamb without blemish was to be slain and its blood was to be spread above the doorposts, and we read that Jesus is the true Passover lamb who was without blemish. And so as Nebuchadnezzar sought youth without blemish, there's only one who is truly without blemish. So take a minute with, with me just to think about how the book of Daniel points us, in fact, to Jesus Christ. Alistair Begg helped me to, to see some of this this week as I listened to him teach. And think about this. Daniel is taken away into exile to the far-off city of Babylon. The Lord Jesus leaves the glory of heaven, and he steps down into the brokenness of our world. Daniel, in the face of great struggle and temptation, he commits himself to obedience and following the law of God. Jesus, in the face of utter temptation, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Oh, Father, your will be done, not mine. Daniel, in the story of, the, of, the, of Daniel, and in the book of Daniel, he is exalted to a place of, of usefulness and of influence. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God on high. And it's from his exalted place that he will one day return to judge the living and the dead. See, the temptation when we read the book of Daniel is to make the story about Daniel. About the morality of Daniel or the courage of Daniel. That's fine to look at those things. That's not the point of the story. It's not about our diet. Apologies to the Daniel diet. That's not what this book is about. It's not about Daniel's faith. It's not about you and me daring to be a Daniel. This entire book is about the God who is mentioned in verse 2, in verse 9, and verse 17. The God who controlled 6th century BC Babylon is the same God who controls 21 century AD America. And Daniel trusted that God. And you and me can trust that God too. The kingdoms of this world will one day topple, every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All the kings will bow before him and all the nations will serve him. However, from exiles in 600 BC to exiles in 2023 AD, we look with great hope to our king who reigns. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're grateful for this book. God, we ask your blessing on the study of it over the next several months. God, would you stir up within us a deep desire to live as faithful exiles in the Babylon of today. God, would you, would you allow us to fix our eyes and our hope, anchor it, in fact, to who you are, to the truth of who you are, as we live as, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom under the rule and reign of King Jesus. God, have your way with our church. Have your way with our families. Have your way with each one of us individually. Have your way with your church globally. God, I pray that as we are sent out into the, the Royal Academy and Babylon universities of our day, that we could go with the strength of God, with the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel, not just to stand firm as social activists, but to stand as men and women who proclaim the matchless name of Jesus Christ. That those who are lost in the brokenness and the decay of our world today would come to know the truth of your Son, the liberating, delivering, delivering power of your Son. And so God, 
This is the first of 25 teachings in this book. God, would you utilize this study in the life of our church to grow and mature us, that you may be glorified through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.